0: welcome to podcast 83 of breakout culture i am ed fazey none other than the culture editor of country and townhouse magazine and i'm charlotte
1: Metcalf. i'm the associate editor at the magazine
0: this week our guest is jake Fynes. he's talking to us from Holcombe in norfolk one of britain's most beautiful estates and home to my colleague in the house of lords the earl of leicester although i still await an invitation to go shooting jake Fynes is Rafe's younger brother and Joseph's twin, but he is a band in his own right. He's part of an extraordinary dynamic and creative fines dynasty, but he's taken a very different route from his siblings. He's the director of conservation at Holcomb, responsible for 25,000 acres of farm and natural reserve. He's a man on a mission to help nature recover from decades of intensive farming, and he thinks gloriously rampant, wild and untamed hedgerows are part of the answer. And that's not a metaphor. Before you wonder what Jake is doing on a culture podcast, he's written a book. It's called Land Healer, How Farming Can Save Britain's Countryside. We're Delighted to have him with us. Good morning, Jake. Good morning, Ed.
1: (laughs) Good morning, Jake. And it's wonderful to have you with us. Now, my ears first pricked up to what you were doing when I heard you on the radio saying you were the luckiest man in the world to have this job as director of conservation. So before we get on to your book, can you tell us a bit about how you arrived at Holcombe in 2018?
2: Uh, so prior to uh, taking the position at Holcomb, I uh, was estate manager for an estate in South Norfolk owned by Sir Nicholas Bacon. And I had been there for 24 years. I oversaw all aspects of the estate. So residential, commercial, gardens over to the public, tea rooms, agricultural, game shooting, forestry. And uh, Tom Lester rang me up as I was heading to Stoneley to go to a meeting with the NFU uh, saying, do you think I'd be interested in, in in this position? So I said, yeah, no, no, let's meet, let's meet. Immediately put the phone down from Tom Lester and then uh, the Duke of Norfolk rang me up saying...
0: <laughs> you are such a name dropper. It's ridiculous. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, no, it's, I'm not a name draw. These are just people that occur in my life. These are, just every, are these aren't these everyday people. <laughs> so I, I then met with Tom, and we met and we had a conversation with. Wait, well, hold on. Uh, what did the Duke of Devonshire have to say for himself? Norfolk. The Duke of Norfolk. 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 Keep up. The, the Duke of Norfolk was um, uh, was sounding me out about an environmental journalist and whether he sh- he was concerned on whether he should have a conversation with him or not so then we met uh and he proposed that this this position so Holcomb uh, an amazing landscape uh rich in nature having a national nature reserve uh, which is just under ten thousand acres uh visited by eight hundred thousand people annually rich in nature and uh so going from going from doing all the so some of the rather mundane stuff in estate management and doing property rent reviews and um, things like that to then get to do all the really sexy stuff, all the nature, all the how we can make improvements in our food and farming systems. How can we can reverse, not reverse, but halt and reverse and increase species abundance and, and habitats. So... I'm not a stand collector, I'm a collector of habitats and Holcomb is rich in habitats, so uh, what's not to like? So um, I did just uh, ring up a friend of mine called Charlie Burrell who uh, has an estate in Sussex and said, Charlie, what do you think? And he said, you'd be fucking mad not to take this opportunity. So I did. You'd be fucking what?
0: (laughs) Mad, (laughs) mad. (laughs) So, of course, Charlie Burrell is the famous, well, his wife, Isabella tree. famously wrote the book Wilding, which I actually read, which is wonderful. It is a kind of romantic arcadian romp through rewilding but there are critics of rewilding
2: i think what wilding or rewilding is actually extensive agriculture it's a it's a, just another form of agriculture we have uh we have high input high output agriculture we have organic agriculture so why can't we have extensive agriculture and i think uh, wilding is that and what, why do you use the adjective ex- extensive? A classic stock, stocking density for an agri-environment scheme would be one livestock unit per hectare. That's like one cow per hectare. And then um, extensive might be one cow per 30 hectares.
0: Oh, lucky cow.
2: Well, lucky cow, you've only got to find your friends when, you're that, when the stocking
0: density is that, that sparse. Yeah, they probably all hang out together and leave 300 hectares un, untroubled.
1: So can we talk about hedges now? Because you use this word "sexy" just uh, at the beginning to describe your feeling for this wonderful habitat, and your opening chapter in your book is called "Hedge Porn. <laughs> so, so and and it's why you know Ed was alluding to sort of gloriously rampant hedges because you do really, really love them and you do think they are saviour to some extent. So why?
2: So uh, hedges are uniquely British. No other country in the world has hedges. They are, they are the building box. They're the building blocks of biodiversity. And they, uh, that they are in picture books and storybooks, um, and are mentioned by poets and writers, uh, for decades, for centuries. And we've kind of neglected them. And actually, as we try to pull ourselves out of a, uh, out of a biodiversity crisis, how, I and mean, we, how we try to mitigate climate change, which, is, which is the impacts of climate change are all happening. How can we do these How can, how can we make differences in meaningful ways that are, that can be visual from, for, for, for people driving through the British countryside or sitting on a train and at the same time improving our farming systems and, hedges are ancient hedges you have hedges that are hundreds of years old you have hedges that are, you know with agri with, with government funded environmental stewardship we have new hedges being planted that are multi species we have hedges part of the enclosures act a lot of the hedgerows at Holcombe are enclosure act hedges they're only 200 years old they're quite young and they're only single single species but it's amazing if you let them breathe and you give them space, they can turn into these wonderful landscape features that we, that we all see so often. But is,
1: that, is that true? We are the only country in the world to have hedges?
2: So, to, uh, to this extent. So, so, so where else do you see this patchwork quilt of hedgerows? You don't. I don't see it in France. I don't see it in, in, in Australia. I don't see it in America. I don't see it uh, in Italy. Um, we, there are boundary features, but nothing to the extent of you know. There are over fa- there are over five hundred thousand miles of hedgerow in the UK. That's, that's pretty a good impressive. Thing.
0: We're right to have hedges.
2: We're, absolutely. And where we're being challenged by the um, by. Uh, because of our we we're, we're relatively unforested in England well in Europe so we're only about 12% forestation the rest of Europe the rest of Europe is close to double that if not more but actually hedgerows are effectively scrub and if we were to reclassify hedgerows into scrub they then form part of woodland so meeting all the objectives of uh, planting trees we have these assets already ready and available they're good to go they're they're oven ready so let's make use of what we have and then work out with spatial planning, which is so key, on where we start planting more, more trees. So right tree, right place.
1: So you're very uh, critical of of hedges being cut, and you call badly, you know, cropped hedges, Taliban alleys.
2: I'm not saying never cut them, because the, it's how you maintain the cycle of the hedge. The more the hedge can, cr- can form its natural shape, hmm. the better it is for biodiversity, the better it is for, you know, so... Many species have specific requirements on where they like to breed. So, if we give the example of the yellowhammer, that actually likes to sing on a hedge that's at least twelve foot tall. Yeah. Many of the hedges are cut to six foot tall and aren't attractive to yellowhammers. Uh, we have these assets, these natural capital assets that form far part of our farming legacy that nature will uh, embrace quickly and that this the annual cutting of hedges short back and sides or the taliban style management which i use that word because it's the, it's it's the exclusion it's a one form of management to the exclusion of everything else so that's the that that's the reason i i i frame it like that i would love to see i'd like to see an incentive from government but also others to actually help farmers come on, come on these journeys to to Let the hedges breathe. You know, flat top hedges, I I want Afro hedges. I want 1970s (laughs) Afro hedgerows that are periodically cut because that will also benefit. So you want a range of cycles, um, a, a range of different approaches happening all the time. A Cornwall hedge bank is very different than an enclosed rack Norfolk hedge. So they all have subtle the you know the subtle nuance and context of context of how they're managed uh, in different parts of the country is really important because that creates diversity and if you 've got diversity then it starts to be embraced by the natural world
1: yeah and you've got beautiful photographs in your book that show some of the you know hedges sort of run riot and they do look glorious and in the four years you've been there you've brought back well, not you, but but there are masses more species now flourishing at hokum and so you you're now advising lots and lots of people from the Prince of Wales to Defra. So, is is this all since Hokum? Tell us a bit about that.
2: So, how long have we got?
1: Oh, we've got hours. Ages. Hours. Oh,
2: hours. <laughs> okay, so. You know so a lot so a lot of these people that I advise I've been doing for quite a long time uh, uh, my relationship with the Prince of Wales is because my previous employer was a friend of his so that's that's how I knew him and uh, and Holcomb's only a stone throws from sandringham anyway and so the the story goes so the this, this, this story to the reason for the for the creation of this book started when I'd moved up to Holcomb and I was with Julian Glover and we were in a meeting in Marsham Street. And if you've ever been to the DEFRA offices, you sit in these little square boxes for 59 minutes and you're immediately ejected on the 59th <laughs> minute for more people to go into the box. So Julian said, would you like to come? Would you like let's go for a beer um, I'm come meet a friend of friend of his? So we met his friend, of a friend of his who had just who had just come out from uh, Houses of Parliament. And he said, um, I, I got, I got a friend who lives in Norfolk. Maybe when we're up, we can go, we can meet up for dinner. So we met this, um, so we agreed a date and on the Friday afternoon before, before the Saturday dinner, I was walking along the nature reserve and there's a wonderful moment where a painted lady butterflies that, that, that emigrate, migrate every year from the Atlas Mountains had come over in abundance. And I refer to nature moments. So they're, Periodically, we have moments where nature is spectacular. Murmurations of starlings, uh, flighting of tens of thousands of pink-footed geese. Um, So I was immersed in a nature moment of thousands of butterflies and there were a couple walking along the track so I went and accosted them and said you cannot walk past and not ignore this amazing nature moment you know (laughs) come and have a look this is spectacular Uh, you know just see them flying flittering and fluttering around your around your head anyway so they were rather bemused and sort of listened to me ranting about nature (laughs) for a bit and merrily walked on their way fast forward to Saturday evening knocked at the door at eight o'clock um, and I was greeted by the couple that I had accosted on the trackway the day, the day before. Um, <laughs> so then we had a very uh, entertaining and engaging evening. And she said, you must speak to a friend of mine who, um, who writes for a magazine called The New Yorker. So then I, so then I met uh, Sam Knight, who has just written an amazing book called uh, uh, The Premonitions Bureau, which has just been a bestseller. And Sam, Sam wrote this fantastic article, which took him six months to write. He went and engaged with all the people that I speak to uh, regularly. Uh, Minette Batters, present the NFU, Tony Juniper um, from Natural England. And it was a, a really magical piece of writing. That then got, following the publication of that article, I was approached by five different publication houses to say, would you like to write a book? So immediately I ring up Isabella Tree saying, what do I do? She said, well, you get an agent. So I got an agent um, and then we um, managed, he, he did whatever agents do. And we went with Penguin Random House uh, and they're part of their new Witness book series. Um, and it was great because their, the previous publication prior to Land Healer was David Attenborough. So it was quite nice to follow in David Attenborough's footsteps. So that's, that's the backstory to how, the, how Land Healer came to, came to be and it's very very, very exciting, so uh, yesterday, which was publication day at groundswell, you know the the kind of revolutionary farming movement that seems to be uh, getting more and more engagement
0: and uh, and we I sold out in day one but where are we in changing you know you mentioned Minette Batters, the head of the NFU where are we in changing people's attitudes the farmers' attitudes to how they farm? I presume there's quite a big resistance to from a lot of farmers to, to this new movement because they've invested in a lot of equipment and they're also used to farming in a certain way. So where are we in turning this around, as it were? And indeed, should we be turning it around? Uh, so answer to your very last question was absolutely, <laughs>
2: absolutely. We have a food system that is broken. We have a, we have a food system that is... Uh, deeply, uh deeply impacts the natural world. Uh, we're aware of climate change. You know, forty percent of habitable land is in agriculture. Seventy percent of England is in agriculture. So it it can play a it can play its part as being a huge potential solution to some of the issues. So the the, the movement uh, I don't know what to call the movement. I call it restorative agriculture, not regenerative, not organic. You know, not conventional, not you know, hard-ass slash and burn. And and Groundswell, in six years, has risen from 500 attendees to 5,000 attendees. It's the biggest single agricultural show in the country. There's no one selling jacuzzis or fast cars. All there are is farmers talking and engaging and knowledge-sharing, and it grows. And some of the individuals you see attend are those individuals that have invested in big sprayers and big combines and big tractors.
0: And who can kind of move the dial on this? Can
2: supermarkets move the dial? They are already moving in on it, and it's how they. So the supply chains is really key to this. You know, there are there are relatively few players in the supply chain, mm. and they need to be it's, they need to be invested in this. And what's great is this movement. Isn't happening through government, uh, government pushing farmers in a way, although they're looking to assess them through the new land management schemes that are being slow, slowly, slowly developed. Um, farmers are getting into this movement, but I put farm, farm, farmers and land manage, land occupiers, land managers into three brackets. So we have, we have a third of farmers that are progressive and are looking at new ways to produce food that have, that are healthy, nutritious, um, and has less of an impact on the environment and maintain our soils, which are really key to producing food. We have a middle third that I really don't know which way to turn. And then we have the last third, which actually would quite like to keep the status quo as is. And I think the the, the journey of this is for the, the, uh, the ambitious forward-thinking movement in agriculture to try, try to persuade the undecided
0: to join their movement. How influential is the Prince of Wales? Does the farming community... I mean, I I obviously have enormous admiration for him and I regard him as a sort of prophet in many ways because he's been talking about these issues for 50 years. How influential is he? Everything that
2: he's been talking about is now right at the front of the conversation. Yeah. And he can influence. And where his influence is so key, it's not by demonstrating what he does on his own land. It's actually... He can bring people together, he can bring bring big agribusiness and he can bring the supply chain together mm. and bring those to, to meet farmers and uh, farmers and landowners and get them to engage and get them to have conversations. And that's where his influence is so important. And the next celeb question
0: is obviously Jeremy Clarkson. He's probably put together the most popular series on farming there's ever been is he doing the right things and is he i mean he probably doesn't influence farmers he probably influences people like me in terms of educating the layman but um farmers presumably have a sort of slightly grudging respect but he has at least shown people how difficult it is to do this job so
2: he he's made agriculture more understandable yeah he, you know the, the farming community have really appreciated what he's done because everything that I haven't seen all of his programs. I've seen snippets. But actually, it's all real things that happen to real farmers every day. Uh, the wonderful uh, 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 wonderful anecdote from a friend of mine was the British public are everyone that you meet in a motorway service station. And when you sit and think about the people that you briefly go in and buy your extortionately expensive fuel from or your bottle of water whatever you might choose to be mm. there's complete range it's that it's everyone in society and jeremy jeremy has managed to engage the entire british public and that's yeah. great for agriculture but is he doing it right jeremy is doing what the majority of farmers do right uh, in every so he's not he's not he he's he has areas for nature uh, you know yeah. he he creates leaky dams by default he um he, he he produces barley for beer you know mm. so he's he's just doing you know i i think it's it's a very representation it's a good representation of british agriculture yes, it is quite large the average british farm is two hundred and fifty acres and i think he's uh it's a four figure acreage yeah so it, it is it's a bigger you know it is a bigger than average but um yeah he's very much- he's run of the mill of british agriculture
1: so what are the big no no's
2: then? I don't think farmers are necessarily getting it wrong. A lot of the time they farm and the, the history of agriculture is they farm according to the policy. So the policy the policy was so we we must care for the soil, you know, so, so the soil is the is the, the most important asset of a farmer. And where farmers, where I drive through farms where the soil is running down the road, you wouldn't, you wouldn't throw out your washing machine. So why don't let the soil run down the road? So that, from my perspective, is a big no-no. So look after your soil, care for it. And then try to think how the natural world reacts when the soil is exposed. The first thing it does is it tries to cover it. Mimicking the natural world in our food systems is what we should be, what we should and can do. And we know the benefits of that. We're only, we're only now talking about things that were done 200 years ago and we just need to do them in a modern context. We are this amazing technology at our fingertips and let's make use of it. So I'm really positive. I think this is a really positive moment in agriculture globally.
1: So you talked about policy earlier and just 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 from you know reading stuff you've said in the last few months you haven't got a lot of time for for the government at the moment have you
2: so michael gove's 25 year environment plan was a pretty special piece of work it it was visionary it was you know paying farmers for to deliver public goods and to be natural capital asset managers was a brilliant concept And what I love about it more than anything is that it goes beyond political cycles. The problem, the problem is it's, uh, it's a very drawn out process. And we've got a sense of direction, but we haven't got a roadmap. And every spring and the autumn where I don't get a good roadmap from government on where we're going, I miss that opportunity. And that frustrates me. And we've got so much to do. And the wealthy, you know, and we know about the oil lobby and how do we wean a global family off fossil fuels? That's a huge challenge. And then if everything's about money and GDPR and growth and leveling up you know i don't I'm, I'm not so sure that's the you know it we can't keep expanding we can't keep getting wealthier and richer because the natural world doesn't do that and we can't we can't sustain this growth this endless growth we need to be at some point all be satisfied with what we've got you know and as a child of the 70s you know going through a very similar period that we are now we were just happy we had we had shirts on our backs and foods food on the table, and we were happy with that. Oh, I couldn't have put it better myself.
1: So can we go, go back to your book for a moment? Because what happened when you asked your brother, Rafe, to do the audio version?
2: <laughs> so, so, I, I'm I'm, so I'm dyslexic. So I went to 13 different schools and didn't start... I was homeschooled by my mother till I was seven. Went to 13 different schools and left school at 16. So the thought of reading... Um, Seventy thousand words in a in a in a shoebox in in London for two and a half days was just I dreaded. That so I thought I know someone who's quite good at reading. <laughs> anyway, he uh, he uh, relatively abruptly turned me down.
0: What <laughs> did he say exactly?
2: Well, I can't quite remember word for word, but it was something like, um, "I think uh, I think you should do it rather than me. I'm sure you'll be." F- Great at it. Is it
0: annoying having uh, famous brothers?
2: When when it's siblings, you're just siblings, so you don't. I don't know. It's you know. I I don't. It doesn't. You don't recognize the fame. The only, the only. So, but you recognize your brother, or then, or you. (laughs) uh, But although you recognize, actually, sometimes you don't recognize your brother because he's playing a character. So yeah. So when we do, when we do meet up, and we all, you know, the family live all over the place. And when the, on the rare occasions that we do meet up, it's you just—it's it, siblings again.
0: Oh, well, oh! I think- you really touched Charlotte. She's very, very hard, cold woman, but you—you <laughs> you thawed, you thawed her with that—that with that emotional. <laughs>
2: Insight. It was there was a, there was a wonderful. So, so 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 the earth the earth is a woman. <laughs> thank
1: you, thank you,
2: Dave. And uh, the the earth, the earth is a woman. It's actually the the god the goddess called Gaia is the earth is Mother Earth. Yeah. Uh, uh, and we are told that she can be brutal and cruel, but kind and loving, and you have to treat her with with, with kid gloves. If if you uh, if you upset her, um, she will come down on you like a ton of bricks. Yeah, quite so right think, to. uh, and that's all very poignant. I think that all of the the language about um, Mother Earth and Gaia is a uh, is all very on point with with everything that's happening today.
1: So anyway, at the end of the day, you are clearly upbeat and optimistic. I mean, that's how you're coming across, and you haven't sworn once. <laughs> I
2: know it's really depressing. I was going to be really swearing. <laughs> I'm, uh, I, I'm. 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 Yeah. I'm. I'm trying desperately not to swear too much. <laughs> I, I. I. Occasionally, I get criticised for it, but definitely when I'm when I'm uh, when I'm relaxed and i um, feel comfortable, I do tend to emphasise things through the through a language that is fruity. So
1: you are hopeful. You're very. You think.
2: I. I, I am. So I don't think agriculture is the most destu- destructive industry on the planet. I. I think that. Uh, that uh, herbivores have a place in our food system. I don't. Uh, I think organic farming uh, has some really good principles. And I think that we can make this world a significantly better place. We can bring back biodiversity. We can bring back nature without reducing our ability to produce food. So I, I am I am positive. And if I look at the responses to the book from uh, the range of individuals that I speak with on a weekly, daily basis, from uh, environmental activists to uh, a hardline Uh, food producers to all of those people in the middle all of them support my message all of them understand that actually we need to change and we can do things better and sometimes there needs to be a middle voice
1: just last question really has george mombio who is the great enemy of farming has he read it
2: uh, not that I'm aware of. I, I I I had asked my publicist whether I'd send him a copy, and I think that's that's happened. Oh. I I saw him at Groundswell. I was actually speaking at the time. I saw him lonely walking through the aisles of uh, of machinery. Um, but you. <laughs> George is really important. George is an agent provocateur, and we need that. We need those voices to challenge us. Much of what he says in Regenesis is absolutely right, and we can't deny the impact that agriculture has. But what George fails to do is to bring that community with him. Because if you say organic is crap, and if you say farming is fucked, then you're immediately going to turn everyone off.
0: Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, I did a programme with him the other day. I think he's an interesting man and I think he, he's an important voice in this debate. No question.
2: Definitely. And I'd love to meet him. Everyone says he's an amazing, intelligent individual.
1: Well, thank you so much, Jake. That was absolutely great. And the book is called Land Healer. And out now.
2: At Land Healer, uh, published uh, on last Thursday, this Thursday. How How Farming Can Save the British Countryside. I did want to. Interestingly enough, I did want to call it "It's Not Fucked," but, <laughs> but my 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 publisher—I don't know why—wasn't so keen on that one. You could have
0: done it. I mean, people say people publish these books now. It would have been "It's Not F Asterisk Asterisk K E D. It's a great way of selling. Yeah, they they
2: weren't they weren't they weren't. So Maybe keen the paperback. That. Maybe the paperback. On the second edit. Well, it, well, the, the, I, having had an email. Um, well, uh, this morning, uh, based on uh, sales, um, it's looking quite positive. So well, there, might be, there
1: might be a reprint imminently. Fantastic. Oh, well, done. Uh, well, thank you so much and congratulations. Thank you very much. Next week is our last podcast before we take a break for the summer. So we're going to be reminding you of some of the fabulous guests we've had on this year, from Tracy Emin to David Hare and Rose Tremaine. We'll be giving you a quick reminder of all the culture we've covered since September, from jazz, opera, music and dance to art, cinema, theatre, television, books, festivals and history. So don't miss that to remind yourselves despite coming out of lockdown and Covid it's been a great year for British culture but
0: that's all we've got time for this week and don't forget you can find us at countryintownhouse.com where you'll also find our wonderful sister podcast house guest hosted by Carol Nett. It's a definitive last word on the world of design and interiors meanwhile we love
1: your feedback so please do keep it coming to me at Charlotte at countryandtownhouse.co.uk. See you next week. Goodbye.
0: See you next week.